0: Hello and welcome to Series 3, Episode 1 of the Future of Internal Communication podcast, brought to you by the Institute of Internal Communication. This podcast explores the evolving role of internal communication in the future of work. I'm Jens Sproul, Chief Exec of the IOYC, and I've teamed up with Kat Barnard, who's a partner at Working the Future, and we're joined by Don Walters, our leadership comms expert. And together we host a conversation about the changing nature of internal communication.
1: Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Future of Internal Communication podcast. I'm Kat, and as ever, I'm joined by my amazing hosts, Dom and Jen. And today, we've got a brilliant guest who we're going to be chatting with, Catherine Handy Woods. Now, Catherine, I have known, I don't actually know, I was just thinking about this before we came on air. I know we met at some stage during the first lockdown. So, um, but it feels like we've been chatting forever about a number of things um, intrinsically kind of underpinned by how work is changing in the COVID era. Catherine is the founder of Meeting Magic and has been working with organizations for several decades now, I think, to help executives uh, run better meetings. Catherine, welcome.
2: Thanks, Kat.
1: I think you're going to do a far better job than I would of just explaining a little bit about your your career background and what you've been doing to enable and facilitate better meetings. So, can I just pass the mic to you a moment and you give us a little bit of background?
2: Sure. Thank you. Um, well, my academic background, actually, is I, st- I studied engineering and, in fact, I started my career um, in construction engineering doing kind of large... Um, power station projects. But my hindsight is that actually that's where I started working with groups because, of course, those kind of projects require multidiscipline groups to come together, to, to work together. And I think, um, yeah, I mean, I didn't really know what I was doing at the time, but I think intuitively I was really drawn to what goes on between people and how do you get people with very different perspectives to work together um, and then I later on in my career met um, a guy called David Sibbert. Um He's the, one of the forefathers of the graphic facilitation movement. And that really got me into understanding more about groups and um, starting to get interested in behavioral science. Um, and then, yes, as you said, I founded Meeting Magic in 99. And since then, I've worked with all kinds of organizations. Um, we call ourselves a small global consultancy because we are a small team, but we get the you know chance to work all over the world with all kinds of organizations because of course everyone has meetings. <laughs> so, um, and the focus, you know, our focus is very much about the behaviors in meetings, how people interact in meetings and how they work together. So hopefully mm. that's a bit of background about me. Yeah.
1: That is a bit that's very good background. And I think what's interesting about it is that, um you know, like you, probably to a lesser extent, but I've worked all over the world with all kinds of different nationalities and working cultures and so on. And of course, you note difference very, very quickly. but i I think I'm not being too bold in saying a universal trait is that, most people have experienced crap meetings, <laughs> and so I'm gonna start off with a bit of a killer question, a bit of a loaded question. Why do you think so many meetings are crap?
2: Well, I'm gonna sort of answer that question by kind of looking kind of holistically at organizations because I think the way we meet is a symptom of, you know, how we even think about our organizations, how we think about work, because within our organizations, you know, they're especially large organizations are quite complex and there's all kinds of things going on. You know, there are information systems, there are monetary systems, and most meetings tend to be about tasks, you know, focused on the, the work or the task of um, an organization, and not on the human system. And I think that's why people experience them as a bit rubbish, because we kind of ignore or deny the fact that really an organisation is just a large group of people and that, you know, groups are the fundamental units of work in organisations and within a group there are dynamics and people are people, not robots. So by sort of just focusing on tasks and ignoring the human dynamic – the human dynamic plays out anyway. <laughs> if you, you know, if even if you ignore it, it's still happening. And because we don't work with it, because people, you know, most leaders and managers are not trained or skilled in working with group dynamics, um, that dimension of meetings just gets neglected. And the fo- you know the focus is on the task, and that's why they often feel a bit rubbish and. You know, So decisions don't really quite get made. People get ignored. Um, People don't always feel heard. You don't bring out the best in people. I mean, I think when people say rubbish, those are the kinds of things that they're experiencing.
0: I think we can all relate to that as well. I mean, I'm sure over my few year, decade experience is that it does feel like sometimes when you to them they're so transactional and it's so and then mm. and it feels like we put too many in to get transactional task-based things done but it then depletes my human system yeah because it doesn't feel enriching or rewarding or cared for or, or, or things like that so and i think you know i can also be guilty of probably putting in too many meetings with colleagues to do tasks where actually it, it's not always necessary so so, you, so if that's what makes sort of a rubbish meeting is that that point around the human system as opposed to being task orientated how do we switch that what what makes a good meeting
2: yeah it's a it's a good question because i would argue that probably our meetings are quite good in terms of the task and you know profit systems at the moment and that's why it you know even after decades of doing this work i don't see any organisation systemically looking at their meetings cuz actually they're okay <laughs> not not for the human beings but in them get the but they get yeah we make you know businesses are making money they're not going oh my gosh you know we need to look at our meetings so that we hit our bottom line targets so you could argue that actually meetings are working but they're working for the task and the monetary systems that really govern how organizations are run and why organizations are are, are run these days. Um, You know, personally, though, I don't think that's the kind of, you know, maximizing human potential. Um, You know, you think about your average meeting, it generally is an agenda with a list of tasks given arbitrary units of time, you know, half hour slots or whatever. And that's how work gets done. But what I've experienced, and I, I kind of think I'm quite privileged to experience this because the older I get, the more I realize that not many people experience this, is that there is a different world where you bring people together and really focus on the the human system in service of the task. So uh, where I've seen it work most is when there are complex challenges being faced where you need to bring, you know, multidiscipline groups together, maybe even from different organizations, um, or let alone different functions. And and there's a kind of an acceptance about the complexity of the situation, which needs this diverse group of people to come together, and a recognition that they've got very different perspectives, and that they're not going to gel into this wonderful team (laughs) like magic, you know, just by being in the same room, whether that's face to face or Um, virtual. And so, there's a kind of quality of work that we do in that type of group that is very focused on the relational aspects of the group, on, you know, people getting to know each other as a starting point, as people, not just as job titles, but then doing work that fosters trust. And, you know, trust is an interesting thing because actually when we do work on trust, paradoxically, it tends to reduce trust. So, it's kind of like working with a shadow you can't really kind of get your hands on it but you know there are ways of doing relational work that fosters trust in groups creates that really strong connection between people and then there's a kind of the work just happens (laughs) you know the, the work is secondary almost to the relationships but what happens again slightly paradoxically is when we do that The group does like the most amazing work. You know, they become the most creative because people feel safe to really disagree and bring their differences together. And they literally can create things that no one individual could even conceive. And I've, I mean, I've witnessed those things, and it literally is magical when you see a group lift off like that. And people, that sense of belonging people feel in their difference, which is very different to what. A lot of teams in organisations, you, you kind of belong because you conform to the norms. This is a very different sense of belonging, where I can bring all of myself, all my experience, all of who I am, and belong and be brilliant, and um, you know, and be part of a team who are collectively brilliant, rather than sort of subordinating and myself a bit for the greater good, which I think often also oh. happens in in teams. Um,
1: yeah. Can I? I'm really intrigued by something you've just said, and I and I'm pretty sure that you guys will be as well. You, I think what I heard you say was that if you, when you have tried to work on building trust, paradoxically people become less trusting, and and the reason why I'm fascinated in that particular concept or con is it, because firstly you know, over the length and breadth of our podcast conversations, trust is something that comes up time and time and time again. But also, Catherine, dare I say, against our current political backdrop, we keep hearing this narrative, this political narrative about rebuilding trust. And I'm thinking, well, that's interesting. If what you're saying, I mean, personally, I'm a bit cynical about that anyway, because I think trust is a very individual kind of tacitly felt emotion but I'm curious about how you've experienced what happens when you focus on trust tell us a bit more about the paradox that you've witnessed
2: yeah well I think as you just said trust isn't a cognitive thing so, you know, you can share models about trust and have conversations about trust in group, but that doesn't build trust. You know, it, if, any, if anything, it gets people going, well, do I trust these guys? You know, how much do I trust them? You know, <laughs> uh, what can I remember that maybe makes them less trustworthy or even start looking for things that make them less trustworthy? So, um, yeah, so developing trust is not a kind of cognitive um linear process. As you just said, it's it's much more visceral. And one of the things I've been um my business partner and I have been experimenting with is um starting with this idea that in any room actually the people come into the session with trust. Trust exists actually, which is kind of different from this mental model that you have to build trust, you know, and create psychological safety. We've been experimenting with saying, well, actually, what if we make the assumption that people do trust each other and that actually what we have to pay attention to is not breaking the trust? Um, And what's interesting in that is it means paying attention to really small things, like every time you promise to do something, you do it. You know, that's the most simple level of trust, transactional kind of reliability. So if we say we're going to finish at, you know, 12.25, we finish at 12.25 because we said we would. Or if we said we're going to ask people for questions, we ask them for questions and we answer the questions, you know. it's And, and it's small things like that. And actually, um, what we're finding is that works. You know, you start from the premise of, Actually, we do trust each other. We want to trust each other. We don't want to not trust each other, but we need to pay attention not to not breaking it. And like I said, the very, the foundational part of that will be doing what you say you're going to do, you know, but then you can come on and build on that, which is deepening conversations that reveal things, you know, self-disclosure and things like that, that help foster trust. But um, yeah, I quite, I think my, um, I quite like looking at the world through the lens of let's assume people trust each other and not break it. It kind of, I like that positivity for myself anyway. And it seems to be working in the work we're doing anyway. So we'll see.
3: Well, Catherine, that that then has a really interesting take on the skills that people need to run effective meetings. So I guess if we say that people are spring-loaded to to trust people, the focus for leaders of meetings is... is how, as you say, how do I, how do I, how do I not damage that trust? Yeah. So, what skills and techniques and tools uh, do you think people need to be able to run effective meetings? And I guess we're looking at it from two angles: one, from whoever's leading the meeting, but also for people who are participants in meetings, what do they need to do as well to ensure a good meeting?
2: Mm. Yes. I mean, I think it is this understanding about groups. I mean, I guess I'm slightly biased because I've basically spent my life, you know, learning about groups and I love groups. I just think they're so complex and strange and, you know, you can take the same group on a different day and it's a different thing or, you know, you change one person in a group and it becomes a whole different entity. And, you know, particularly what goes on between people, um, you know, really interests me. And yeah, so I think groups are fascinating. And I just, I think, you know, even just some fundamental training for managers and leaders to understand group dynamics, and to even consider group dynamics, because, you know, there is training out there, obviously, about group dynamics. But I don't think because, you know, leaders and managers, conventional training for leaders and managers is not about groups. (laughs) It's not considered important. You know, they need to learn about, I don't know, financial systems and how to develop strategies and, you know, that kind of knowledge and and, skill set is what's developed and nurtured in most leaders and managers. And the kind of mystical world of groups somewhat passes them by and yet they live and, you know, work in groups. We all grow up, well, most of us grow up in groups in families. And, you know, we carry those patterns with us through our lives. And you can see it in meetings, you know, that people are playing out their, you know, relationship with authority or their second child thing going on or their dad issues going on. You know, And so as a leader, you know, if we can come just a little bit more aware of those group dynamics and work with them, I think that's the key is rather than just denying that they're there and focusing on task. How do we get the task done through, you know, working with the dynamic of people? Because people are amazing and they can achieve so much more when we work with their humanity than when we sort of deny it, which is what happens in a lot of our systems at the moment.
3: Well, it's, it's interesting you say that because we've been talking a lot on these podcasts about the power of conversation, about the importance of community. And I guess when we come on to this, the role of internal communication in doing that but stepping back from that for a second um, if in the future leaders are going to be required uh, to work in groups much more I guess they're going to be as we try to increase collaboration as we bring in people from different ex- expertise different parts of the organization that they'll need to be better at it so what are the two or three things that you think leaders need to hone their understanding of or develop their skills in in order to give them better chance of of getting more from those groups
2: I mean, I think I I would start with just like some fundamentals around group dynamics. You know, there are models and and tools. I mean, there's hundreds of tools and techniques you can almost sort of pick one that interests you. You know, that would that that helps you um, get a better grip what's actually going on. You know, often beneath the surface in in meetings. I think the other thing is, I mean, even without any clever scientific, you know, models and stuff. I think there's something about just, you know, being more human, you know, rather than the kind of, right, here we are, it's 12 o'clock, we've got our meeting, we've got a busy agenda, let's chop on and, you know, even just saying hello and how are you, you know, and let alone saying how are you really and being willing to listen actually connects people, you know, before you dive into task. So, you know, it doesn't require kind of rocket science models and often it's the simple things that just help us connect as human beings that can, you know, make a a start to shift things in the right direction in the way Mm -hmm. we work together.
3: So I guess leaders, people who are leading meetings, need to have these two things in their heads from what you're saying. One is the task and and some of them are more predisposed to focus just on that. Yeah. But also this whole relationship thing. Remember, yeah. you're dealing with a bunch of people who have emotions and thoughts, and, and even the simplest bit of connection can often change the whole mood of a meeting, I guess.
1: Yeah. So
3: uh, I'm really taking that, that the idea that you have to have these two things balancing in your head. Yeah, um,
2: absolutely.
0: Yeah.
3: And then, then <laughs> and I guess, like I said, there's a role for internal comms. Sorry, Jen.
0: No, no, I was going to pick up on, on that role for internal comms as, as you're talking about. And, and actually, what you just said about that thing about group and you bring your own group behaviors from however you've grown up or your families or your I, i'm like i've never thought of it like that before because if i i can only apply it to my own self-examination but if i think about how um a family dinner used to go and the order and how that would work you do bring those behaviors with you <laughs> um but i was you know, I, I, absolutely i'm like yeah no i can i can see that in myself um but no i just picking up on this point around obviously there are listeners who are internal communicators and. Yes, they might be involved in in, in leading or organising meetings with their teams, but actually more fundamentally... Um, whether it's the work they're doing through listening programs, through employee advocacy groups, where they're tasked with perhaps pulling people together to understand what's going on in their thoughts, their businesses, or trying to drive a, a task outcome or an understanding outcome. I guess, so, or you're advising your leaders on your managers on how to run more effective meetings. What, what role can we play, do you think, in helping colleagues to design and facilitate better meetings? Is there a, a format that perhaps, perhaps internal communicators could adopt to then try and recommend into their organisation at at multiple levels. Mm.
2: I mean, I think the challenge of this work, and it's kind of the pain and the pleasure, is that every group and every situation is different. So uh, there isn't really a sort of silver bullet. I mean, in a way, if there was, I think people would probably be using it. I think part of the challenge of this work is it does literally require us to examine our mental models of how we even think about work. You know, when we think about work and think about organizations, do we really think about people first? You know, often that's written on the doors, uh, you know, the walls in receptions of, you know, company officers. But when push comes to shove, you know, money's tight or time's tight, the kind of human system is second. And I think so to really kind of shift these patterns and behaviors isn't a simple task. Um And so, I mean, this might be a bit controversial, but I would argue the best way to start improving things is to stop the really rubbish ones, you know? I mean, uh, Kat started this conversation by saying, you know, why are meetings so rubbish? And I think most people know that that's just part of work. But if we kind of each individually said, well, I'm going to just stop going to the really dreadful meetings, you know, I'm just going to say no, it would create space for new things to emerge. And I think whilst everyone's so busy at the moment and so overwhelmed, you know, saying, oh, you've got to learn a whole new skill set and do things really differently feels too much to ask people. But to say, well, just stop going to the really dreadful ones (laughs) feels a bit more achievable. Um, And I think I might have mentioned this to you before. I've got this like three-letter acronym for how do you say no to a meeting and it spells (laughs) omg so the o is like if there's no clear objective you know a a meeting without purpose is not ever going to be a good meeting frankly um so ask about whether there's an objective or purpose and if it sounds a bit fluffy you know you might want to get um a bit pokey and ask some questions about that the other is you know M is like my role. So, what's my role in achieving this objective? Why do you want me to come to this meeting? And again, if it's not clear, you could argue, well, I'm not really needed. You know, just bystanding in meetings isn't a lot of fun. And then the G is the role of the group. You know, is this work that needs to be done in a group or is it really just going to be a PowerPoint presentation? In which case, you know, you could make a video and send it out and people can watch it it's there's no role for the group in terms of the group doing some work together and bringing their different perspectives together and so you know it, i think asking those kinds of questions when you get invited to a meeting can help you maybe filter out the ones that are less helpful and then create some more space and i know i don't know anybody at the moment who wouldn't want some more time in their calendar <laughs> more free time um and maybe in that time then they could start to explore you know understanding groups and group dynamics but at the moment i think we just need to stop the the kind of madness oh, great i love
3: the idea of, of saying to someone I, I can't i'm not coming to your meeting because i'm going to study meeting dynamics I think it's a fantastic idea I, got, I think i'm going to try it but but kathy can i ask you a question if you're if you're in a meeting and you're not leading it, and you're thinking this is not brilliant. It's a waste of my time. I wish I would never come. I guess one option is to go, which is possible. Yeah. But are there some things that you've seen work that members of a meeting can do to change the tone of the meeting or make it more productive or or make it more engaging?
2: I mean, I think asking those questions at the beginning of a meeting. You know, I mean, mm-hmm. it, you probably won't get thanked for it, but um, you know, what? Why are we here? What are we trying to do? And I mean, when people and often people say that, well, it's an update on Project X. But like, why? Why do we need an update on Project X? You know, because a lot of time in in meetings is spent updating each other. But actually, the fundamental question hasn't been answered. Like, why do we need to know? What is it we're going to do together You know about this and so I think asking some of those questions up front can really you know even as a meeting participant can really help or even when you're part way through and you might feel a bit lost you know bringing it back on track to kind of like what are we trying to achieve here so I think those can make them less um, unproductive but I also think the thing that we can all do is just be a bit more human like create that connection um, so, you know, we all sort of said, how are we when we arrived today? And, you know, it kind of creates a little bit of connection. You know, you don't necessarily need to do emotional open heart surgery to be able to have a kind of uh, a, a, a simple meeting, but something that just connects you as human beings um, beyond the task. And again, I think, uh, I mean, if if you're feeling bold and brave, you can initiate that kind of thing in any meeting just asking people how they are, but then I also think being willing to hear how are they um, because, you know, I often also, the other dynamic I see is in organizations where they've started to do this kind of thing and they ask how they are, but it's like, well, and chop on and and don't say anything negative because we've got an agenda. (laughs) So, I guess that's the other thing is ask people how they are and be willing to really be interested in how they are and know that even just saying how they are will, yeah, enable them to kind of connect more with the work.
1: I think this is so interesting. There's some really juicy nuggets in here because actually, if you think through where our operating context is right now, you know, everything is far from clear. And I suspect heavily that in in times of such ambiguity, it's um, probably a human sort of a, a trait of human nature to convene and to meet, to make sense of this ambiguity. But also, um, you know, we know that there's there's a growing dialogue um, around the need for inclusion. So I suspect my my hypothesis would be Gosh, we're all probably going to experience more and more demand for meetings. But what you've described is you know rehumanizing them, point number one, so that there's kind of two agendas. One is what is what is the agenda, what are the tasks, and two is what are the relationships. And um, I lo- I love the idea. I mean, it's a bold one, isn't it? I love the idea of of, of politely saying no, I don't need to come to this meeting. And here's why. I'm not sure. I'd mean, be curious. I mean, you know, perhaps in a year or 18 months time, we reconvene and find out how many of us, you know, audience included, were able to to push back in a way that, that felt right. But I, I just think the whole thing, you know, we are in this really tight spot at the moment where it seems to be the case. That in order to make sense of complexity, we need to be. We feel the need to hold more meetings, yet we're not. We're not approaching them right, are we at all? So what you've said, brilliant. Sorry, I'm rambling. I'm just very enthused.
2: Well, I think you know the the part part of the joy when at the beginning when I was talking about you know having been lucky to be part of groups where they do do you know really good relational work. I think the the great thing about that is in those groups, you know, the work feels really fulfilling, even when they're, even when things fail, even when things go wrong, even when they're in difficult circumstances, doing work in those types of groups feels amazing and, you know, restorative. And it's kind of the complete opposite of how I think traditional, you know, team working and group working is done, which is you're constantly in search of a goal, you know, really your performance is managed or, or only judged if you succeed at the goal and that the kind of process of being part of that group isn't nourishing. It's just kind of like, you know, a means to an end. Um, whereas actually, I think in the kind of groups that I'm, you know, advocating can do really great work in the complex world that we're in, the process of being part of the group is just great you know, for its own sake, as well as the work that gets done. So it feels very different.
0: It's given us so much, uh, Catherine, to go away and think about. And, w- and one of the things that, that, that just strikes me is, as we're talking as well, in terms of the negative connotation of the word meeting. Yeah, It's, it's something that makes, when you get it in your inbox, you're like, ugh. Again, you know, do we? Are, are We've we made such a negative language language or feeling association with the word in itself, you know. And I always like the thinking of going, well, actually, know this is a group work session, rather than you know, do we just do those sorts of things that really redefine or replace that? And I also think, as you're uh, as you're talking about how to stop them and that OMG model. There's so much that internal communication as a function can bring to the party to support that. Whether that, So if we're going, well, if there is no need, it doesn't fit the OMG, it's just a piece of informity as an, a knowledge update, videos, communication, informity, broadcast, we can, we can provide a solution to that to give the space for group work. And then the other thing that, that, that strikes me is if we achieve that, then you start to deal with these issues of burnout. This issue of well being, and then we make more space for group work or group conversation, as well as just thinking about building into that human system. If we think about this complexity, this pace, this overwhelming way that we're living and working, actually, if you just bring that simple analogy to it and we reframe the emotion that goes behind simply the word meeting. Um, and bring that in, I think we could make great strides to thinking about how actually these become places for relationships and connections. Um, and that is actually a place that we want to be. And the other thing I, so for me is I, as I kind of sum up this, this, this podcast, you know, there's the thing I'm going to take away and go, let's understand groups, understand group dynamics. Let's build that knowledge because by doing that, then we can be better facilitators of conversation. Um, and the, and by doing that as a first principle, tasks will get done as a, as an outcome of that, but never as as the start point. I think the other thing that I'm going to take away, as well as the model that I've just talked about, as well is is this is this trust. Let's assume trust is there. Let's And let's not break it rather than see a meeting as a solution to build trust when it destabilizes trust. So it's that paradox. And I think that that would be quite an interesting approach to be adopted. And then really is to go in and really support our, our colleagues, our line managers, our people to help to think about building in conversation that enables the human system. Um, and those for me are, are some absolute amazing nuggets for our audience to to really think about and think about what role they can play in bringing those kinds of solutions and, and mindset shifts um, to their organizations, which will perhaps address the needs for the human system the actual outcomes for the organization in itself and actually the ability to create relationships and trust. So Catherine, thank you so much um, for your time today. Honestly, lots of things and I'm going to go away now and I'm going to go and OMG myself and look at all of my (laughs) diaries. And I'm going to send lots of emails going, I don't think you need me for that one. It's (laughs) not there. Um, So thank you. (laughs) I feel empowered. Uh, Thank you so much and um, have a great rest of the day and hopefully you'll all tune in again next time. Thanks so much for listening today. This episode has been brought to you by the Institute of Internal Communication and was hosted by myself, Jen Sproul, Kat Barnard, and Dominic Walters. And we've been discussing the impact of digital communication on relationship, community, and collective problem solving. This episode was produced by Jessica Williams and Shabit Luogonpalu. And if you've enjoyed this episode today, we'd be enormously grateful if you could rate, review and subscribe on the channel you choose to tune in. It really helps others to know that we're here. We'll tune in and hopefully see you next time.